Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Before we jump into the fascinating life of Napoleon, uh, some unfinished business from yesterday. You recall we talked with the USU history professor Julia Gossard. She's giving a presentation tomorrow on Halloween called Witchy Women, the Long History of Witchcraft in Western Civilization. We had an interesting discussion yesterday to which Kathleen Kavara-Kor from Southern Utah responded. Uh, Kathleen Kavarkor is adjunct professor at Dixie State University. Here's what she says. For some further points to consider in relation to what some call a genocide of women. Some estimates are that 9 million women were murdered by the process set in motion by the Catholic Church Inquisition, which also targeted Jewish people and migrating Europeans known as gypsies. One, first point, there is a three-part documentary called The Burning Times, created in the mid-1990s, which is an excellent, well-researched portrayal of the Inquisition that focused on killing women justified by the narrative of witchcraft. Two, many men in Europe were called to the Crusades, which lasted for about 200 years. Many men were killed or did not return, leaving land and wealth to the women in their families. During the Reformation, the Catholic Church created the Inquisition in some respects to get that wealth and land into their hands. The Catholic Church confiscated the land and wealth of women accused of murdered as witches. Three, there is also evidence that married women with children were also targeted. Four, the demonization of women. Uh, Researchers hypothesize arose from male jealousy of not being able to control the birth process and nature, especially since the male contribution to birth was not well understood. Lust and desire by men was projected onto women as it presently is in rape culture. She asked for it, etc. The Catholic Church held a supreme power in Europe for over 700 to 1,000 years. It's interesting to realize that King Henry VIII was one of the powerful forces beginning to separate the church from the state that we all benefit from here in the USA. It's Kathleen Kavara-Kor, adjunct professor at Dixie State University. Thanks for that, Kathleen. And uh, you can keep that uh, discussion going at upraxcess at gmail.com. What a novel my life has been, Napoleon once said of himself. Born into a poor family, he was a general by 26, an emperor by 35, an effective master of Europe by 40, his power unparalleled in modern history. Yet his downfall was no less dramatic than his meteoric rise. The story's been written many times over. In some versions, he's a military genius, a divine avatar, in others, a war-obsessed tyrant, a devilish ogre. In Napoleon, a life. Uh, best-selling historian Adam Zamoyski cuts through the mythology to uncover the real Napoleon. And we are uh, pleased to welcome Adam Zamoyski to the program uh, from, I believe, London. Mr. Zamoyski, thanks for joining us. Good afternoon. Uh, good afternoon. Um, um, <laughs> yes, uh, afternoon where you are. <laughs> thanks for thanks for joining <laughs> us over the over the, uh, the 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 time difference there. Um, so uh, Napoleon, very very interesting figure. Your I think uh, the main goal here, one of the main goals, is to cut through the mythology, cut through the iconography, right? Get us the real uh, the man behind all of this. You have an interesting background. Um, you uh, you say you grew up amid the crossfire of contradictory views of Napoleon. Between your Polish-speaking home, English schools, and holidays with French cousins, you ex- uh, encountered all divisions of Napoleon, I suppose. Well, that's right. Um, and they were wildly differing. Uh, at the point is that, um, you know, Napoleon, Napoleon's life uh, lends itself to fairy tale. And um, people, even historians, are very prone to uh, weaving wonderful fairy tales, you know, a better story. And uh, every nationality, every um, different uh, nation in Europe has their own Napoleon narrative. Hmm. Uh, it's interesting, and, uh, it's interesting to, to just scan the illustrations in your book. Um, and uh, you know, some are very heroic, commissioned by Napoleon himself, or people who were who, who held him as a great man. Uh, there's a couple of uh, portraits um, by British artists, and uh, and you see a completely different view of Napoleon j- just in the pictures. Yes, um, in fact, if you look at uh, I've I've um, only reproduced uh, portraits that were done from life. Uh, by real artists, by good portrait painters. And what they all seem to show is a, um, 
an element of diffidence and even insecurity. And even the heroic portraits done by Ingres of him um, dressed up and his ridiculous fig uh, pretending to be Charlemagne, uh, if you do a close-up of the face, you actually see the guy looks really quite worried. <laughs> he, he almost seems to be saying, you know, hang on, does anybody actually believe any of this? <laughs> um, he was, um, I think, the man Napoleon was, was, you know, well, first of all, he was a human being. And this is what most historians um, and most of the mythologizers forget. Uh, and, and I've tried to get to that human being. Mm-hmm. And um, he's actually rather more sympathetic to me than, than the, the hero. Uh, so I want to get to the man. Very interesting. You've you've painted uh, quite the portrait um, from from sources at the time, right? And from there's a lot of correspondence that you've dived into from Napoleon. Um, I, I want to get to some of the, the the myth though before you know the myth that you're trying to cut through. Uh, he very very soon, I guess during his time, and then very soon after. Uh, he was uh, co-opted, or he was he was used uh, by very various factions. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Well, he first of all he um, built up an image of himself. He was the most incredible propagandist, and he um, both uh, out of a sense of self-preservation, but also to help his his um, ascent to power. He um, lied like anything, so he'd write, after a battle, he'd write it up in heroic terms, exaggerating the numbers of, um, you know, the the, the numbers of enemy dead and taken prisoner and all the guns and the the standards he'd taken, and minimizing his own losses and going on about the heroism of himself and his troops. And he he did weave an extraordinary uh, and uh, kind of narrative around himself, which was also what the French nation of the time wanted to believe of himself and of itself. And um, as a result, um, he became, uh, as much as anything else, a symbol of a kind of France that they wanted to see. That's, uh, I guess that we have phenomenon of, you know, fake news now, propaganda still going strong. Uh, and that's an element, I think, right, if uh, people <clears throat> want to believe some of these things, and so they suspend disbelief. Yes. And uh, what was interesting is that, um, you know, my book came out uh, here in, 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 in the UK a couple of weeks ago, and um, I had a terrific review in the, in the London Times. Um by somebody I don't know who, who the reviewer is, but uh, anyway, he um, he welcomed the fact that I debunked a lot of the myths um, because he, he he was not a sort of Napoleon admirer, and he he said it's a marvelous book and it's so good that all the myths have been debunked, and then he finished up by saying um, actually, but the trouble is the. You know, the story of Napoleon was more entertaining before. <laughs> it's like, okay, this may be history, but it's not what I want. I want the fairy tale. Um, and, you know, it's... it's um, And coming back to the mixed visions, you know, the French are wedded to a fairy tale. Um, the British have a fairy tale that, just like in 1940 against Hitler... And in 1800, they stood alone and defending Europe against the evil one. Um, the Poles have this crazy idea that Napoleon loved them and was going to recreate an independent Poland, which is complete nonsense. Um, but people like their myths, and they cling to them. And, and, and very often you get um, people get quite upset with you if you <laughs> debunk them. Um, in, in, in the 19th century, uh, many nationalist movements and many revolutionary movements also used him or their idea of him to further their own means. So you had, on the one hand, you had revolutionaries um, posing as, as, as little Napoleons. Mm. And on the other hand, every single dictator from, um, you know, sort of Bolivar to Bokassa 
in Africa has used the Napoleonic narrative to repress and and slaughter. So, mm. You know, it's he's he's um, he can be used for anything. Mm. I believe you you reject the the great man narrative. Uh, do you? And 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 you you describe Napoleon in some ways as a quite ordinary man with some extraordinary talents. Well, yeah, you know, I don't buy I don't buy the kind of genius myth. You know, there, you know, we all have different talents, greater or lesser, and some people work at them harder, and some people are cleverer at certain things, and um, and and some people do have extraordinary gifts, um, which would which just they do seem sometimes to be absolutely you know God given. Um, but I don't, on the whole, buy this this thing that people are just sort of born as a sort of godlike uh, creature. And the fact is, he he worked incredibly hard at to achieve his successes. And when he stopped paying enough attention and got a bit lazy uh, because he was already so powerful, he began to make mistakes and um, and of course made the you know, this reputed military genius ended up making uh, the greatest um, self-inflicted military disaster in history when he invaded um, Russia. Um, And and also at Waterloo, where he just completely sort of made a total mess of things. So, you know, I don't buy buy that, that... he was, that there was anything kind of special about him. It was like when he was paying attention and working hard, he was great. When he wasn't, he was um, he, he could make a mess of things. Um, and uh, you know, and, and what was everything that was great about the Napoleonic era was, um, you know, in, to a large extent due to him, but also to a very large extent due to. Uh, other people of his time, his contemporaries, who worked with him. Uh, so, it was because you, you've alluded to it, uh, beginning of an answer. Uh, I've had the question now, then, you've said, um, you know, in some ways an ordinary man with, with some extraordinary talents, worked very hard. Um, then how do you explain the, you know, the, the incredible accomplishments? Uh, essentially, emperor by 35, effective master of Europe by, by age 40, then it all came unraveled. But uh, some some incredible and 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 some of them lasting accomplishments. How do you explain those? Well, again, I mean, he 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 came to power uh, not just by himself. It's not like one guy turns up and says, "Right, I'm going to stage a coup d'état." He was very very careful. Uh, a huge proportion of the French political class wanted. Um, a strong man to restore order. Uh, indeed, many wanted a king, and they were looking round and they looked round at various generals. And he came along at the right moment, and uh, he he you know it's almost as though he surfed a, a wave uh, to gain power. And once he got into power, he used his power very cleverly, and he simply gathered up all the most intelligent people in France, and there were very many of them. And he he would sit them down and say, right, now let's put together a code of laws. Come on, guys, you're all clever. Let's get, let's, let's go through this. And he would kind of metaphorically bang their heads together and say, come on, we'll stop discussing. So, you know, make a point, get to the point. And he'd keep them up till four o'clock in the morning uh, and say, I'm not letting you go to bed until you have sort, you know, until you've done this, you know, finished this paragraph of the law or reached a conclusion on this point. And so he, he forced them to concentrate their minds and, and to stop discussing and being too theoretical. He was, a, he was an immensely practical man and a pragmatist. And so he squeezed the best out of people, and there were a lot of very good people around. So he, he squeezed out some amazing um, uh, institutions. I mean, 
arguably they're not institutions everybody would like, whether you like the French legal system or the, the French um, uh, the, the Napoleonic Code or the French educational system, or you think others are better, that's another question. But he did create an extremely efficient set of institutions and uh, structures that which have survived. Mm. There's another, uh, you know, many traits we'll get into, but uh, one you point out in the book that very clever, wise on his part, he tended to try to co-opt his enemies, right? Bring them in. Let's uh, let's join forces rather than uh, rather than uh, you know uh, crush them uh, if he could. Yes. Um, well, he had this uh, division. I mean, French society had been horribly divided by the revolution, uh, and. Um, and violently polarized. And there were, on one extreme, there were Jacobins who thought that you know, everybody should be guillotined um, and, and there should be a sort of tyrannical power of the people. Uh, on the other end, there were royalists who wanted to bring back the Bourbons and, and the Ancien Regime. And he wanted to create a fusion, as he called it, of the best of every system and to bring all the best people in. And he did. He managed to bring some 40,000 em- nobles who had emigrated during the, the revolution for fear of their lives um, and had, had been um, sitting around in places like England and Germany waiting to um, reoccupy France. And he, he drew them back in and said, come on, we'll you take a stake in this new France and we can make an amalgam of the best of France. And and that was a considerable achievement. Hmm. I, I want to get into, uh, let's take a break. When we come back, I want to get into the Napoleon the Man. Of course, that's what you're focusing on here. Um, some things I'd learned from the book um, <laughs> surprised me. I would have thought uh, Napoleon would have been a strategic genius. Uh, I, I would have thought he'd be great at chess. You say he's, he was bad at chess. Um, and uh, not yeah. a particularly good public speaker, although he's really good at rousing yeah. his troops. But but in political sense, not a not a great public speaker. No, absolutely not. He he um he was always confusing his words, and instead he'd say a good constitution instead of um uh, of, of confirmation, and then he'd say he'd call an armistice an amnesty, and he used to keep confusing words terribly. Hmm. Um, and no, he, he, he was no good at chess and, and he cheated shame, shamelessly at cards. <laughs> yeah, there's a scene where his mother calls him out. <laughs> <laughs> yes, she, she forces it. And whenever he's challenged, he just, he just sort of confuse all the cards, shuffle all the cards on the table and say, no, 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 I was right. Right. Um, he he would then return the money the next day. <laughs> so, winning was the thing. He'd he'd give you back your money, but he had to be seen as winning, I guess. Yeah, he had yeah. to win. <laughs> yeah, let's we'll get into more of uh, Napoleon the Man following this break. Scott Thompson and Bruce McCullough, two of the original kids in the hall, are going to be here alongside Paul Myers, brother of Mike, who wrote a new book all about the kids. We'll talk about some of their most famous sketches and how kids in the hall changed comedy forever. That's coming up on Q from PRI Public Radio International. This afternoon at 1 on Utah Public Radio. Why is music so important to cultures and to the anthropologists who study them? Everywhere in the world, music conveys thoughts, feelings, and ideas. Because it is such a strong medium for expressing identity, ethnomusicologists carefully document musical traditions of the people they study. They recognize that music serves as a window to deeper elements of culture. For example, music communicates struggle and oppression of a group. Likewise, music is so fundamental to human experience that it also serves to bridge communities and cultures. By learning about the culture's music, we discover how people define themselves, relate, and coexist. This segment of Anthropology, What's It to You, has been made possible by our members and the USU Museum of Anthropology collection, including pre-Columbian Peruvian ceramics, Indonesian textiles, and Great Basin. Details at anthromuseum.usu.edu. 
Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. We're talking with historian Adam Zamoyski. He's the author of over a dozen books on Polish and European history, including 1812, Napoleon's Fatal March on Moscow, and the very interesting book, Phantom Terror. I want to talk a little bit about that one uh, as we go along. Uh, he lives in London and Poland. Uh, the latest book is Napoleon, A Life, in which he cuts through the mythology, uh, gives us, his goal is to give us uh, Napoleon, the man. And uh, we've reached him uh, from London. You can join this conversation by email to upraccess at gmail.com, upraccess at gmail.com. You could call us at 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. Uh, Mr. Um I wonder, uh, there are several facets I'd love to get into, maybe just open-ended first. Um, tell us a bit about Napoleon the Man you, that you found from the primary sources, cutting through the myth. What What stands out most to you? Uh, what stands out most is that he was uh, actually very vulnerable as a person. He came from a hick town in the middle of nowhere. He he was sent to school at the age of nine in a completely different climate. He could barely speak French when he arrived at this school. He was he was small. He was puny. He was um, rather olive complexioned. Uh, he came from the provinces, indeed from a colony. Uh, he couldn't speak French. Uh, uh, there was even a rumor that he was uh, illegitimate. And uh, so, you know, he he he, he was quite... Uh, uh, he had quite a hard time there. Um, he, he held his own, and he fought back by, um, you know, trying to get smarter than them, which he did. Uh, but... His uh, vulnerability never left him to the end of his life, and he, to the end, he had a, a terrible complexes about his origins, um, about his um, physical abilities, about his uh, even about his intellectual acumen. Even though he had read a huge amount and educated himself, he was still fundamentally a very insecure person who was very, very susceptible to any criticism or. Or, or any any perceived slight, um, rather a sad story in many ways. One one sort of, even when he's being hateful, you can't help feeling sorry for him. Mm. Um, you know, and, and then uh, he had huge problems with people. I don't think he he wasn't very good at at, at friendships because he was um, quite he, he was he was quite tucked up inside himself. Um, and, and couldn't relate to people well, and, and had problems with, particularly with women. Um, and he he only had a couple of women who really he felt um, at ease with. And he only had a couple of close friends, people who who could get close to him. Uh, but otherwise, it it, it was some. Um, he he was a. He was a loner in many ways, and um, you know, it's, having achieved all everything he'd achieved, he then uh, he, he he seemed incapable of just sitting back and enjoying it. He, he kept feeling he had to do more and and earn the respect of people more by doing achieving greater things. Uh, he 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 didn't, he didn't have a high I don't think he had a great sense of self-worth, actually. Mm. I was interested to learn about his family. Of course, if you if if you uh, think about Napoleon the myth, okay, the, the myth doesn't have a family, right? But Napoleon, uh, this large and uh, kind of a rambunctious Corsican family, uh, rivalries, jealousies. I think there was at least one brother who felt that the wrong Bonaparte had achieved power. Well, yes, because in 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 the sort of familial code of Southern Europe. Um, the the eldest brother was the the eldest brother. He was the, the head of the family. Well, Napoleon was the second brother along, and his elder brother, who was pretty useless, um, <laughs> kept kept sort of thinking, "Well, hang on, you know, I'm the head of the family." And uh, even when Napoleon had become emperor and had and, and and it had been sanctioned by a plebiscite with, you know, however many million um, yes votes there were. 
And his elder brother, Joseph, sort of said, well, actually, it's me who should be emperor. <laughs> and, and sort of somehow implied that all those people had actually voted for him. Um, so, but at the same time, rather than just ditching them all, uh, Napoleon was um, felt bound by the familial code uh, to stick together. You know, he regarded the family as a kind of, as a firm, uh, a very sort of southern, southern um, European notion, uh, the kind of thing you get in southern Italy and, and, and uh, Mediterranean um, areas. And in some ways, they were, some of them were an asset to him, but most of them, they were the most frightful, most of the time, they were most frightful liability, mm. um, behaving badly, and, and crossing his plans, uh, and so on. So um, they, they cost him more than they, they gave him. And he had a very interesting, I guess you put it under statement, uh, tempestuous marriage um, with, uh, with, with the famous Josephine. Yes, well, the poor fellows. He he had a he'd had a very desolate um, uh, emotional and sexual life when it came to women um, in his youth, um, and he was very awkward and uh, and had, you know he'd had sex, but it was clearly not a great experience. He actually wrote up his first um, go, and it, it doesn't appear to have been great. And then he was set up with this older woman who was an accomplished lover. Uh, and suddenly she made it all work for him. So he went wild with the excitement um, and, and thought he'd fallen in love and gone to heaven. Um, the trouble is, <laughs> she wasn't remotely interested in him and, uh, uh, and, and found him faintly ridiculous. And I don't think she found him particularly um, good in bed. Um, so she took uh, lovers. Um, blatantly cheating on him, even even though they by then got married. Um, he in the end he he forgave her and did find a, a sort of happy kind of middle class married existence, very comforting. Uh, and and indeed she was a very good influence on him. She she was a, an extraordinary woman uh, who was very flighty in some ways, but. But she was wise and she was gentle and everybody adored her. She was a genuinely kind, kind woman. And she'd lived through the horrors of the terror. She'd been in jail about to be guillotined and she'd survived that. And, and uh, so she was quite damaged and they, they clung to each other. And it, it was very sad that he felt he had to repudiate her and, and marry a younger woman. Mm. I want to read just this uh, paragraph. This is so interesting to me. This is uh, Adam Zamoyski from his book, Napoleon, A Life, which is out now. Um, you, re you write, from his earliest years, he had sought role models, embraced his ego by casting himself in the image of a Hannibal, Alexander, Caesar, or Charlemagne. But after briefly considering Themistocles, he had lighted upon an entirely new model to impersonate, one uh, just as mythical as any of the others, which would gain far greater resonance than all of them put together, that of Napoleon. So, so that he he chose him this an idea of himself to to be a role model. Well, that was that was what was so extraordinary about um, his his captivity after Waterloo. As you know, the the, the Brits shipped him off to uh, the island of Saint Helena in the South Atlantic. Uh, where they treated him um, really very, very badly um, because <laughs> he, he pointed out, um, he, he asked them, am I a prisoner of war? In which case, if I'm a prisoner of war, I should be released because the war is over. Uh, and he said, um, if I'm not, then I'm being held as a criminal. And criminals are allowed access to their family and they can write letters. <laughs> he went there in jail, and he could do neither. So the Brits did treat him extremely badly, and he very quickly um, worked out that he was going to take his revenge by um, representing his last five years that he spent in captivity as a kind of martyrdom. And he had uh, a few courtiers surrounding him, 
and he knew they were all writing down their um, impressions and his statements. So he'd sit there after dinner, you know, talking about his life and his past and what he'd wanted to do and about people. And, of course, rewriting history in the most glorious way. Um, a lot of this is complete rubbish. But, of course, the moment he died, they all went back to France and they all published uh, their accounts of his captivity. And what came out of that, particularly one of them, the Memorial de Saint-Hélène by the Count de Las Cases, it turned out to, to be the kind of Bible of the Romantic movement. Uh, he, he, had, he had turned himself into a kind of mythical um, martyr, uh, the great man who had wanted to achieve so much for Europe and the world and had been brought low by nasty little British shopkeepers. Um, and so all the romantics who rejected the materialism of the 19th century uh, saw him as a kind of, uh, as a victim and martyr to um, to it. And, and and so the cult of Napoleon, the kind of spiritual cult of Napoleon was born. So having worshipped, as he had in his youth, um, people like Alexander the Great, um, he actually built up... <laughs> After his final defeat, he built up, uh, and this was possibly his his greatest um, victory, uh, he built up this um, quite fantastic cult of himself, which which grew amongst uh, particularly young people throughout Europe, and not just Europe, for, for generations, uh, which you have to admit is quite... It's quite an achievement to do after you've actually been defeated mm. and brought down. Um, start again and, and, and um, triumph in a, in a different di- sort of dimension. Mm. I want to uh, talk a little bit about, uh, I guess, the prevailing attitude of the time. Napoleon, you're right, certainly had this. I guess this is comes in the the foment of the revolution and the post-revolution revolution which by the way gave Napoleon opportunity to rise so quickly through the through the ranks of the army um, an idea in the air that anything was possible right we could we could remake the world and I, I believe you, you write that Napoleon had this this feeling yes I, I think his, his generation did and th- this was what um you know, he couldn't have won all those battles and done all those things, achieved all those things, without the people. Um, and all the young men of his generation uh, were fired by kind of an astonishing feeling that they were they were creating a new era. I mean, remember that the French Revolution wasn't just about a change of government. Uh, it was very much the idea that they were replacing the old with the new. They they were chucking out the old religion, for starters, and bringing in new faith. They, you know, they they changed. They brought in a new calendar. They brought in new weights and measures. Everything was going to be new. It was going to be a different world they were creating. Something it was terribly futuristic. The whole idea, um, and because it seemed to be working or at least happening, you know, things that had been unthought of. You know, you don't just change the calendar because somebody decides it's a good idea. Uh, it seemed like an extraordinary thing to do, and a lot of these people thought they were creating a new age and a new world. And it seemed to be working. The sheer release of energy uh, meant that that there was fantastic motivation in various fields, and certainly in the military field. And that's why these young men who thought they were heroes of antiquity, that thought they were like Alexander or Caesar or whoever, charged into battle against... um, old-fashioned soldiers who are just treated soldiering like any other trade. You know, you, you, you did what you were supposed to do and you took money for it and you tried not to get killed if you could possibly help it. Uh, and suddenly 
you know, the, these the French um, armies were um, inspired by uh, not a fanaticism, but just a faith in themselves and in what they were doing that, that kind of, you know, just blew, blew the opposition away. And so he, he had this very powerful, you know, okay, he did a lot to, to inspire them and galvanize them, but, but the material was there, the raw material was there. Um, you know, he, if he'd suddenly been given a, a few regiments of, you know, contemporary Austrian or, 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 or Russian or Prussian troops, he wouldn't have been able to, to, to do what he did. Uh, it, it was, France was undergoing this extraordinary um, moment uh, of faith in itself. Uh, which seemed to make everything possible, and and that and that was uh, w- was largely what responsible for, or at least what what enabled him to do what he did. And of course, it began to fall off as that generation um, grew paunches and, and and wanted to stay home and um, and make babies rather than make war, mm. and and hence it became much more difficult in the. And the victories were less spectacular, and then, uh, and then after that, it was only the defeats that were spectacular. Mm. So it was, uh, it, it was something of a national phenomenon in a way, or a, or a European, you could almost say, phenomenon. Let's take another break. When we come back, more with Adam Zamoyski. The new book is Napoleon: A Life. More following this break. The woman was on the ground and the bull was tossing her in the air and back on the ground. And where were you? I was right on the other side of the fence, but the fence was electric. Why is it that certain people will risk their lives for a stranger? I went ahead and just climbed through the fence. While others won't. My neighbors would not help me. That question this week on Radiolab. That's coming up at 10 here on Utah Public Radio. The ensemble playing this piece calls it a can-can in space. So grab your dancing shoes and dust off your space suit. We're going on a musical trip to the moon with composer Jacques Offenbach and the group Windsync on the next Performance Today from APM. Tonight at 9 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour today is historian Adam Zamoyski, his latest book, Napoleon, A Life. And uh, you are welcome to join the conversation to by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Adam Zamoyski, um, I want to talk a bit about the revolution and the, the context here. Um, of course, after the, the revolution, then the terror and the, very much traumatized all involved. And uh, then the desire came for some st- stability and order. And, and that, that's where Napoleon came in. But when it wasn't him, I guess it would have been somebody else. Um, I want to talk a little bit. And Napoleon, I believe, saw himself, you write that he saw himself as completing the revolution, right? Um, finalizing it. Uh, but I want to talk about... Um, the reaction, and you write about this in your very interesting book. I want to spend just a little bit of time here on, uh, which I found fascinating. Just reading about, I think this will be the next one I pick up, Phantom Terror. Um, and so, uh, European forces, conservative European forces, uh, you say, a thought that uh, once they had, uh, you know, defeated Napoleon, banished him, that they had managed to put the genie back in the bottle, but they were still terrorized by this this fact right this revolution um and uh looking for phantom terrors all around uh in many cases uh, ones that weren't there yes it's a, it's a, it's a, a curious human characteristic that that uh, once you start uh, believing in bogeymen they are everywhere <laughs> they're under the bed they're behind the wardrobe they're um, hiding in in the garden, um, and there had been this mounting idea throughout the 18th century that there was a sort of wicked sect of people, you know, the Illuminati, the Freemasons, whoever, that were 
um, undermining the established order, the established faith, um, undermining thrones, undermining the social system, social hierarchies and everything. And the French Revolution seemed to confirm that there was this uh, terrible uh, conspiracy and that it had managed to um, uh, to, to uh, overthrow the you know, one of the greatest monarchies in Europe and was uh, trying to overthrow the others. And although uh, in 1815 the, the Allies who crushed Napoleon put in place uh, an extraordinarily um, strong um, kind of security system, an international one, and they kept meeting uh, every couple of years at Congresses to check on, on how things were going, and although they had all built up huge police forces and secret police forces and, um, and, and you know, surveillance systems and so on, uh, the more they did so, the more um, frightened they became uh, that, um, that there was a conspiracy out there um, about to outwit them. And as so often happens in these situations, the more um, police they recruited, the more these people who felt and these uh, all these um, spies and secret agents all had to justify their existence. So uh, when they couldn't find evidence of conspiracy, they'd invent it and send in blood-curdling reports of um, secret meetings by conspirators vowed, vowing to murder every king in Europe and so on. And uh, it, it was, it's an extraordinary um, uh, example of sort of human, human psychosis of uh, how something can get completely out of hand um, and provo- provoke greater repression, which then provokes, eventually does provoke revolution mm. um, because of its in- injustice. Um, and... Uh, Really, the, the revolution and Napoleon uh, brought in the whole surveillance state, uh, which is is its own worst enemies in, in many ways. It's, it's a fascinating, um, fascinating phenomenon. Um, I hugely enjoyed researching that book because you know you'd find in in police archives. Um, ridiculous reports by secret agents saying that they had met somebody calling themselves XYZ who said he had attended a meeting where daggers were shown and you know they'd, they'd, they'd be drawings of these daggers with inscriptions saying I have been made to kill a king or something like that mm-hmm. you know and it, it was all like something out of a cheap novel. And yet, um, governments up and down Europe um, believed in this and were absolutely petrified. Mm. I want to read something uh, that you uh, that you said in a previous interview that's very interesting, bringing it forward to resonances in probably <laughs> every times, but certainly in our times. Uh, Adam Zamoyski says, it gives much to reflect... Uh, upon when it comes to how the state grows in power with every war and crisis. How irreversible is the tendency of all rulers in modern times to expand their organs of information and control, and how that growth, while making life a misery for all of us, is actually remarkably inefficient and counterproductive. Worth reflecting on when going through security checks at airports, you say. Exactly. (laughs) Yes, I mean, it's... um it is a fact of, um, of human nature that no, no government will ever reduce the amount of surveillance or um, or reduce its powers, and so everyone adds a bit on. And ultimately, it's um, you know it, it's very it's a very um, moot point as to whether any of it serves a purpose at all. And when you look at security checks at airports. They are unbelievably meticulous and tiresome and difficult and all that, and a huge industry has grown up around them. And yet, uh, as we've seen, they are ultimately 
uh, only as efficient as the intelligence behind them, because it's extremely rare that uh, anybody has been actually caught out by a regular security check, and quite a few terrorists have walked through them very, very easily. Uh, and and usually the ones who are caught out are caught out because somebody, some human feeling, not the check itself, but somebody there says, hang on, this person doesn't look right, quite right to me, or something arises suspicion. Uh, but it's usually proper intelligence uh, that, that provides the stuff rather than, um, than the sort of mass uh, mass blanket intelligence, which we all seem to um, to crave. I want to uh, just spend a, a, a couple of minutes on a very interesting, uh, another thing you said in the same interview, about the lessons learned from history by historical figures. Um, and so you say it's often said if Napoleon had only learned the lesson of Charles XII, he wouldn't have evaded Russia in 1812. If Hitler had only heeded what happened to both of them, he would not have met his nemesis. Uh, there. You would go on to say, actually, they did study campaigns of their predecessors. They just learned the wrong lessons, did they? Yes. I mean, Napoleon had um, Voltaire's history of Charles XII um, at his, you know, in his um, traveling case throughout the, the um, Moscow campaign. And he'd read it before. Um, and he thought he was going to be cleverer. And he um, he devoted a huge amount of time on the kinds of wagons that were bring, going to bring his supplies forward, and it was all terribly clever and well worked out. And it all all came to nothing at all. Uh, but the fundamental uh, lesson they failed, both he and Hitler um, failed to learn, is that um, Russia is... Uh, or was certainly in, in conventional times, uh, strategically invulnerable because unlike every other state in Europe when, where if, if you actually took their capital and their main industrial base and their main financial base, uh, they, you know, people would put their hands up and say, okay, um, I surrender because the state ceased to exist. Whereas Russia wasn't a conventional state. Um, Moscow, although it was theoretically, um, you know, the heart and soul of Russia, wasn't actually its administrative capital. And uh, the Russians were so nomadic in, 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 in mentality, if not anything else, that they were perfectly happy to burn their capital uh, just to spite um, Napoleon and deny him supplies. And this was the lesson he didn't learn. I mean, the climate stuff as well, you know, that didn't help that he ignored warnings. But um, really it was that, that, you know, he could have marched around the whole of Russia uh, occupying, you know, he could have, even if he'd occupied St. Petersburg after that. Um, or it wouldn't have made much difference. He wouldn't have got what he what he um, what he wanted, which was submission. Um, and, and and you know, with Russia, there's only one thing you can do: either destroy it completely, um, or else just leave it alone. But you can't force Russia to submit like you can force um, most. Uh, established countries to submit just by showing them that, that you know, you're more powerful than, than them, and it would be in their interest just to sort of say, yes, sir, and I'll do what you say, what you ask. Uh, and that was the, the lesson they didn't learn. Hmm. Just um, uh, two minutes left. I want to get this in. This goes to, we started the, the conversation talking about how you are in some ways rebutting the great man uh, theory of, of history, getting to the real Napoleon here, and, and that he, uh, able though he was, ordinary in many ways, and riding the, the crest of history, uh, you know, social um, um, forces, 
Uh, here's a very interesting statement that you made. You say, we learn our history as children, and therefore become used to accept the great men of the past as being noble, wise, and intrepid. In actual fact, most of them were as second-rate as the majority of those who hold sway today. <laughs> and I think it is salutary <laughs> to be reminded that people are people and will behave as people do stupidly. Um, so that's uh, you know it's kind of reassuring in a way, um, you know, that the people don't change over time, including our politicians and leaders. Kind of disillusioning in a way. What uh, in one minute? What would what would you have us take away from that statement? Well, frankly, I mean, if if, if you look, if one looks at oneself uh, honestly, we're all ridiculous at times. You know, <laughs> even even when we can occasionally do something really good, we can really be clever. The fact is, at, at bottom, we're all just quite silly people who. Um, stumble around trying to trying to do get things right and often getting things wrong and uh, you know the idea that there are people out there who always get things right because they are somehow special um, is just is just um, you know complete uh, nonsense. <laughs> well, it's a fascinating book, Napoleon: A Life. The author is historian Adam Zamoyski, author of over a dozen books on Polish and European history, including 1812, Napoleon's Fatal March on Moscow, and the Phantom Terror that we made reference to in this uh, conversation. Lives in London and Poland. Uh, we've reached him uh, from London. Uh, Adam Zamoyski uh, enjoyed the book a lot, and uh, thank you so much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And uh, coming up tomorrow, as part of our Utah Women 2020 series, we're going to be talking with several uh, leaders, uh, talking about very high rates of participation by uh, women across the the U.S. as candidates in uh, the upcoming uh, midterm elections. Talk about this phenomenon, what it means, and hope to get your comments as well. That's part of our Utah Women 2020 series, and that's coming your way uh, tomorrow. Then on Thursday... We'll be uh, talking about War and Remembrance. That's a new concert uh, coming up soon from the American Festival Chorus and Orchestra. And uh, we're talking about the intersection of uh, war and music. All of that coming up. And uh, thanks for listening today to Access Utah. I'm Stephen Dubner. On the next Freakonomics Radio, I'm sorry. The idea here is that an apology is basically like signing a contract. Researchers know the formula for a successful apology. So why are most apologies so unsuccessful? What occurred was unintentional, completely regrettable, and I apologize if you guys are offended. How to optimize your apology? That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Thursday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Utah Women 2020 is a UPR original series exploring the unique challenges and opportunities facing women in Utah today. We're exploring gender parity, the Me Too movement, elections, and much more. The series is airing on Utah Public Radio during NPR's Morning Edition and All Things Considered and UPR's Access Utah, also on the UPR app and wherever you get your podcasts. That's Utah Women 2020, right here on Utah Public Radio. listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. Heard on KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, and online at upr.org. Utah Public Radio is everywhere you are with news, information, and musical programming statewide via our six transmitters and 30 translator signals. Worldwide on the web at upr.org and through our new online app. UPR is only a push of the button away.